Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. In the early 1940s, James Joyce released his third and final novel, 17 years in the making, called Finnegan's Wake, which is in some respects a sequel, or like it's sort of a philosophical follow-up, an aesthetic completion of his huge modernist masterpiece, Ulysses. Both books are known for being incredibly difficult and brilliant, the kinds of books that people pretend to have read because it... It suggests that you're like a you're a fucking smart smart person if you if you read the books. But both books also catch a lot of shit. As much as they did at the time of their release when people thought that they were scandalous or just, you know, it was just too new to really get a sense of what the fuck was going on because they were both so innovative. But they also get a lot of shit now. They catch shit for being pretentious on the one hand, and yes, they are pretentious. Both of these books are are fucking laden with allusions to ancient myths and shit and wordplay and puns. But on the other side of that coin, the action of Ulysses takes place on a specific day. It's it's now celebrated around the world. It's, it's called Bloomsday. And that day in the novel is June 16th, 1904. Now the book was published about 15 years after that, but the reason that Joyce chose that date for the setting of his great literary opus was he wanted to commemorate the very first time that he and his lifelong beloved, Nora Barnacle, whom he would soon marry, he wanted to commemorate the first time that they sat together in a sunny, green Dublin park, professed their love for one another, and she jerked him off on a bench. So obviously, in, in, in that respect, I think... I think that kind of subverts the pretension of all the literary shit. There's also a long, famous scene toward the beginning where the protagonist, Leopold Bloom, he takes like a shopping catalog into an outhouse and uh, he takes a big shit and he comments on the shit in his head and then he tears away a page from the catalog and he wipes his ass with it. But of those two later novels, Finnegan's Wake is the only one that it's huge, it's indulgence, it's, it, it's, it's a sign of cultural status for those who can read it, but it is also casually and almost universally dismissed as as a, as a kind of brilliant piece of shit and i am absolutely fascinated with it not fascinated enough to read it because i'm not ridiculous but i'm obsessed with the idea of a very ambitious book that an ailing and half-blind and broke genius worked on tirelessly for 17 years before then promptly dying upon its release I think Joyce lived just long enough to see people not give a shit. At some point in, in the catalog of James Joyce's correspondence, later on, it was later on in life, I think between Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, he, he wrote to someone saying, I have reached the end of English. And that does seem to be the case in this final book, because almost every single word in Finnegan's Wake is a pun. It is misspelled. It is spelled in such a way that, given the context clues, it is, it's denoting one thing while connoting two or three others. Virtually every pun can be interpreted to mean different things, and depending on the interpretations that you choose, different storylines will unfold. The overwhelming majority of people who have ever attempted Finnegan's Wake did not make it all the way through. I don't suspect that I will ever get all the way through it, and yet... 
I own two copies, and I routinely pluck them off the shelf and page through them and read a passage and feel stupid. And yet, I just this month bought two books. One is by Joseph Campbell, another by Anthony Burgess, that are about Finnegan's Wake, that claim to unravel Finnegan's Wake. Both of them posit the idea that if you only allow it like 30 or 40 pages, you pick up its its rhythms and, and you start to understand it, even though it's jibber-jabber. The novelist Michael Chabon wrote an essay about a year that he devoted to reading Finnegan's Wake and then reading it again. And he gave the effort lots of time and lots of effort, I think because he was probably bucked ahead by the fucking Joseph Campbell remark where he says, like, you know, James Joyce is what is one of the great literary geniuses of the 20th century. He spent 17 years on this novel. Maybe you can give it like an hour of your time, which is such a fucking low blow. And I feel like shit whenever he says that because he's both right and wrong. He's right in the sense that, yeah, James Joyce contributed a lot to literature, he influenced a lot of writers, he changed the course of letters, and so yeah, at least before you trash or dismiss Finnegan's Wake, you should allot it a certain amount of time, at least, at least an attempt at appreciating what he was trying to do. And yet, simultaneously, I feel that that statement is wrong, because I, I, I am rather keen to argue that I don't owe my time to anyone who ever jizzed on a bench. I know that's an arbitrary way of dismissing someone, and I, I don't mean to dismiss him as an artist or an intellectual or even as a decent person, but I certainly, if you, if you presented me with two people from two doorways and you're like, Alex, this man is named James, he has a family and he makes cabinets with his hands, and then you turn to the next guy and he was like, oh, and this man is also called James. James is a writer. And one time in, in 1904, he done cumped on a bench. Now to, who, to which of these craftsmen should I give a grant? Philip Roth was apparently mortified after he published Portnoy's Complaint, which is like this very slim masturbation comedy. But he, he published it in the late 60s. It turned into a huge bestseller. But then, even though it had made him a millionaire, he started to resent it because people started just shouting dick jokes to him in the street. And then at one point, Jacqueline Suzanne went on the Johnny Carson show and she said, I would love to meet Philip Roth, but I would hate to shake his hand. Anyway, Shabin's verdict finally is that Finnegan's Wake is not worth the time. That he said it's a cool artifact of 20th century literature. And of course, it's, it's interesting to read within the context of Joyce's biography. But ultimately, it's just... Chabon's verdict seems to suggest that Finnegan's Wake is a book that demands more of its reader than it gives back. But for some reason, I'm still drawn to it, and I am obsessed by the author's obsession. I love the idea of somebody being a celebrated artist, and then you fucking choose to spend a third of your life writing a huge book that nobody understands. I guess because there's just a lot of integrity and, like, commitment to one's sort of personal aesthetic and ideals. We were just talking about dicks though, and Michael Chabon wrote a popular essay about why he chose not to get his son circumcised. And I think it's cool that he broached the conversation. In my experience, guys are like kind of hush-hush on the t I hear women talking about things like circumcision, uh, female circumcision, obviously, which is a blanket atrocity, but also it's, it tends to be feminists, from what I've heard, who talk about sort of the senselessness of male circumcision too. But I think guys don't talk about it because they're self-conscious about like, how women will judge it? Like, oh yeah, maybe I won't get my son circumcised, but what if women in the future are like repulsed by his not being circumcised? And that's what makes me wonder, like it's, it's cool on the one hand that Shabin decided to take that approach 
and write what he wrote and explore the issue and give it serious thought. But I do wonder if his son is going to be really fucking pissed because Michael Shabin already, he's, I think he's only in his 50s, and he's like in the canon, the American canon. His shit is taught on college campuses. One day his son is going to be a student on one of these campuses. But anyways, that's, again, we can extol the same virtue. This is what writers do is they tackle the hard stuff like uncircumcised co I also really like the writer Mark Z. Danielewski. He's most famous for a horror novel called House of Leaves, which is a big factor. That House of Leaves, if you have read it, it, it adds a layer to my own book in the works, Cuba Fruit, which is almost done, maybe. But Mark Danielewski wrote a book that's often compared to Finnegan's Wake. He spent six years on it, and it's called Only Revolutions. I have tried again and again to read Only Revolutions. I know people who have and who love it, and I just find it impenetrable, but I was moved. Re I, first of all, I, I love Danielewski's commitment, his Joycean commitment to ambitious, difficult projects, and I was very moved recently to hear an interview with Mark Danielewski. He was talking about the business end of his profession, because even though he has a cult following for his big, difficult books, they tend to have a hard time finding a larger audience that will sell and maybe put him on a bestseller list again. But he talks about how a couple years ago, he was on the brink, after many attempts, he was on the brink of selling the TV rights to his most famous novel, House of Leaves. But then, as he was going over the contracts, he started to see clauses that kind of suggested he was forfeiting more ownership than he wanted to forfeit. They were offering him a huge amount of money, but they were going to exact basically total control of his great work. And he points out in this interview that at the time he he received this offer, he was in his 50s, he had a pregnant wife, and it was looking like they were going to lose the house. And so because he was in that tight situation and suddenly he wasn't just this bachelor artist who could keep himself warm at night with his integrity, he was prepared to sell some measure of his artistic integrity simply because he needed the money to take care of his family. But then he went and he showed the contract to his wife before making any decisions, before making saying anything about whether he was inclined one way or another. He shows the contract to his wife, his wife reads it, and she looks up at him and she says, this sounds kind of rapey. And so he didn't sign the contract. He did not catch the flood of cash that he and his family could desperately have used with the baby on the way and, and a home in doubt. And still, years later, Danielewski, he doesn't teach at a university, he doesn't do a column on a blog, he doesn't write for Hollywood. Danielewski goes on just sort of devoting 10 years at a time to writing these huge literary novels that really just a few thousand very loyal, ambitious readers are prepared to tackle. But I'm obsessed with his obsession, and I think it is such a beautiful thing for an artist to be that obsessed and that self-destructively married to their integrity. It's crazy, as my father and other fiscally responsible people would say, but maybe that's why it's romantic. And yet, I'm not sure that I would want to emulate it in the event that I should even have a writing career. Not only because, you know, as I get older, I want to be financially comfortable and I want to be, I want to be able to readily afford the accoutrement of middle age life, like eyeglasses and lube. But I also don't particularly like the idea of devoting many years of my life to a single creative project. Now, if it's a project like watching a thousand very different movies from around the world and across a century, then yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. I will happily spend a decade 
exploring that trove of intrigue. But dude, I am right now reaching the end of a novel that I've been working on for just about a year. It's called Cuba Fruit, and I'm at the end of my fucking rope with it. I'm happy to be working on it. I enjoy it. I think it's good. I'm very proud of what I have accomplished, but I'm really fucking ready to be done. Which reminds me of another thing, which is the fact, I think I talked about this in an earlier episode, the fact that uh, the past, ever since November, I have been binging the novels of a very ambitious crime writer named James Elroy. In the past three months, I have read 3,000 pages of James Elroy's writing, and his novels are generally huge. They're six or 700 pages. They've got a huge cast of characters. They're incre incredibly complicated plots, and they take him you know, three to seven years apiece. And right now, on the fucking tail end of Cuba Fruit, I am thinking that although I do want to pursue a career as a novelist, feel more passionately about virtually nothing on this earth ex than I do for novels, but I think I'd like to write short ones. I think I'd like to write, you know, a 250-page novel, one of those, every two years. Or I would like to release one every two or three years. I would only... But I want, it to, I want to be done with it in one year. And for the rest of my time, creatively, I want to do this. I want to be tasked really with just reading widely and looking at things and thinking about shit, confessing things and questioning things and brooding. I am endlessly compelled by Finnegan's Wake, but I can't read it. I am compelled by Only Revolutions, but I can't read it. I'm compelled by the obsessiveness of Robert Caro's 50-year-in-the-making five-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, but I can only read about a hundred pages at a time, and then I leave it alone for a month. I obsess over these things because they manifest not just obsession, but loyalty to one's own obsessions. A lassoing of one's obsessions, and I know how to be obsessed. I can do that. Anytime someone says something to me that is, I can, that can in any way be interpreted as offensive, I become obsessed. I'm good at it. But I'm not disciplined about my obsessions. I'm not smart or responsible with my obsessions. My obsessions lead me through the shopping mall on a leash. But I think that is the way that I want to live my life, is having these compact periods of wily obsession with a bunch of different things, so that decade by decade, I am weirdly conversant, intimately conversant on like a bunch of disparate things. Like right now in my head, I could readily concoct a conversation between Rocky Balboa and elderly Leonard Cohen because I've spent so much time immersed in the output of those, you know, creative figures. Is there a, a book that I ever write in my future that is 700 pages long and takes me a decade to complete? Almost certainly fucking not. I cannot tell those kinds of stories. But I'm not too sorry about the fact that I can't tell those kinds of very ambitious, beautiful, intriguing, engrossing, status-bequeathing stories because I can tell another kind. I like to tell the stories about the people who tell those stories. 